ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, um, you've said that your word is a lamp to our feet, the light to our path. So as we think about how we're to live, how we're to walk, we come dependent upon your word, your instruction to us. So please, now I pray, help us. Help us to see how it is that we're to live, how it is that we're to walk. Um, May your word this morning be such a lamp, a light to us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ephesians in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, please. I want to read verses 1 through 16. Ephesians in chapter 4, please. This is the word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, though humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and, and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, <clears throat> when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Last week we began this section by asking a question. The question is, how do we live as followers of Jesus? How do we live as those who trust to believe in him? How do we live as those who have been saved by him, redeemed, forgiven? How do we live as Christians? That question comes right from verse 1 where Paul says what he's going to talk about is they're going to, to walk in a manner worthy the calling to which we've been called. But notice he begins with the word therefore, which means everything he's about to say is based on what he's already said. That's very important. I'll continue to emphasize that just so we have it in our minds that we're to live because of, based on, from what God has done and is doing uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit. First three chapters lay that out. This is what God has done for us in Christ, what he's doing. 
And then he says, now given that, given what he's done, what he's doing, now you're to live. In fact, a good summary of all of that probably is found in Philippians in chapter 2. I don't know if I mentioned this last Sunday, so if I did, it's a review. If I didn't, then it's just, uh, I should have. So Philippians in chapter 2, in the middle of verse 12, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And there he has in mind being obedient. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, Paul reminds us that we're just simply working out what God has worked in. The working in comes first, the working out comes second. We depend upon what he's done in order to do what he commands us uh, to do. We must never get that order uh, reversed. And so now he urges us, he says, um, to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Now remember that our Christian life is a calling. It's initiated by God. He calls us to trust him. He calls us to repent and believe. He calls us to follow him. It comes from him. It's a calling from God. And we know that if we've responded to that call, then we know that that's a call that's been effective, that he has worked by his spirit, repentance and faith in us, uh, worked by his spirit in us, uh, a new life worked by his spirit in us, a desire then to follow after him. And to walk worthy of this call doesn't mean that we make ourselves worthy so we can receive this call, but it means once We've received the call. Then how do we live? How do we, how do we live? Well, we said we're, we're to walk worthy in the sense of, of, a, of, of the of an old-fashioned scale with two trays. And you put a weight on one side, and that side goes down, the other side goes up. And now we're to live in such a way that in the living side, that we're to live in such a way that reflects the calling, that's consistent with the calling. We said that it's, it's rather like putting on clothes, that, that we're to live worthy of the calling, meaning we're, that, that our life is to match this calling to be those who belong to God through Christ, those who are of his household, those who are citizens of his kingdom, and those who are being built together to be a dwelling place for God. That we're to live in such a way that, that fits that, that matches that, that doesn't clash with that, you see. Um, the old language of even baptism and church membership, one of the vows goes like this. It says, do you now promise and resolve and humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit that you will live as becomes a follower of Christ? We don't use that kind of language anymore. That something is becoming of a person that matches a person. Um, watching the royal wedding, uh, you might see a bunch of hats, and you might look at the hats of someone you say, well, that becomes her. But then you look at some other hats and you say, that doesn't become anything, right? Maybe it is becoming something. It's alive on her head. Uh, but, but that doesn't become her, you see. I was watching some NBA games recently, and, and, and this, a particular player might make a move or take a shot, and you could say, well, that shot becomes him. That it fits him, his position and his skill level and all of that kind of thing. So it's fitting with that. So, so where to live is becomes a follower of Christ that's, that's consistent. That's what it means to walk worthy of this, of this calling, uh, you see. And so Paul urges us to do this. That's a wonderful word, urge, you see, because you can feel it. 
You can just say the word urge, right? You can feel the emotion of it. You can see the, the, the importance, the significance of it. I'm urging you to do this. With every ounce of my being, I'm calling upon you to live like this. This is really important. This isn't optional for us at all. That we must, as believers in Jesus, live worthy of this calling, live consistent with it. These two things go hand in hand. You can't, mustn't have one without the other. This, what God has done, leads to how we're to live. And so Paul says, I I urge you. Now the good news is, as we mentioned, that not only is this not an option for us, it's not an option for God. In other words, it's not an option for God to have us live in a way that's not worthy And so he's at work in us. And that's, of course, our hope. Now in this passage, uh, as Paul lays it out from chapters 4 through 6, really, in this whole section, as Paul lays it out, he's telling us how we're to walk worthy of this calling. There's two primary headings here. We see in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 that walking worthy to the calling to this calling means that we're to walk together, that is to live in unity with one another. And then, as we begin in verse 17 of this passage, he's going to say, if we're going to walk worthy of this calling, we're going to walk in purity. And so unity and purity, these things, go together, not one or the other, but both, and we're to walk worthy of this calling to which he's called us. So if we take up just these verses that I read this morning, we find that the key here, what what sort of tells us the theme, is verse 3. Paul says that we're to be eager. Um, Some passages, some versions say make every effort. Some versions say be diligent. Uh, This one's simply be eager. Uh, There's a sense of speed about this word. There's a, there's a right nowness to it. There's a get on with this right away. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit um, in the bond of peace. And what we find in the first six verses, at least verses two through six, is, is sort of the logic of this unity that we have in the spirit and the character traits that he um, says that must be true of us if, if we're going to be able to maintain it. And then in verse 7, he begins to tell us about gifts given to the church that will enable us to maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're only going to be able to get through some of that today, verses 2 through 6, just the logic and these character traits to keep, uh, to keep in, in our minds. But we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is to say, we're to live with, in peace with each other. I read earlier... From Colossians in chapter 3, a long passage, I trust, somewhat familiar to you, so as you're listening, that, um, that you can, you're able to hear it and follow along. But towards the end of that reading in verse 15, Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. In other words, we've been called to live in peace. We've been called to live in unity together. Um, and so we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, now, Paul doesn't say create this unity. He doesn't say make this unity. He doesn't say cause this unity to come to, into being. He says maintain it. 
which means it's already there. The unity is already there. And he says you're to maintain it. It's the unity of the spirit, you see, in the bond of peace. This unity, this uniting believers together is something that the Holy Spirit does. We can't do it. It is something that only the Spirit of God can do to unite us together. Because you see, it's a union of believers in Jesus. See, in the economy of the Trinity, um, the Holy Spirit applies what Christ has done to those for whom he's done it. Christ? That's the work of the Holy Spirit to apply what Christ has done to those for whom Christ has done it. And, and so when we speak of the work of the Spirit, we realize that, that he's the one who, who, in a sense, grants to us this new life. He works it in us. We find uh, Jesus speaking of this new life by the Spirit in, in John chapter 3. We sang this morning, God so loved the world and all of that, which comes a bit later in John chapter 3. But here, John chapter 3, uh, uh, Jesus speaks of those who are born of the Spirit. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 5, one is, is born of water and the Spirit. He cannot, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit who gives us this new life. But it's Jesus who bought this new life for us, you see. And so the Holy Spirit comes and applies it to us. Um, in the same way as John's introducing his whole, uh, his whole writing, his whole gospel, in chapter 1, he speaks of those who have received Christ. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So, so we become children of God because of this work of Christ that is worked in us, given to us, if you will, effectively by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that Jesus did in his death was reconcile us to God, but also reconcile us to one another. We read about this in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 18. For through him, that is through Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentile believers, have access to in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of, of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, it's the work of the Spirit then that takes the work of Christ and makes it real to us. Unites us together, the very presence of, of God. It's been, if you will, done. And bear in mind that this simply isn't just a community of faith that we have. That expression really is empty, especially for Christians. We're in a community of faith in Jesus. 
You see, it's only in Jesus that we're united together. This isn't a union with all other human beings. Now, we share a great deal with all human beings, of course. We're human, they're human. We have all kinds of interests, like for health and for safety and for education and for um, uh, economics, uh, well-being, and all of that. So we can make a long list of all the things we share with human beings. And so in that sense, united to them. Uh, but this is different. This is a group of believers And only believers in Jesus who are united together by the Holy Spirit, by his work. And we're called then to maintain the unity of that. And it has to be in this Jesus. That's why I chose this morning for our profession of faith, this passage out of Philippians. We'll come back to it even again. But this is the Jesus um, in whom uh, uh, and through whom we're united Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality a thing to be grasped, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being found in the likeness of men. This Jesus, who is divine and human, not any other Jesus, but this Jesus, who is the very Son of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This very one, who was in the form of God, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant that is being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this this death, this death on a cross, is an atoning death. It's a death that takes the sins of sinners upon himself. It wasn't just a death as an example of how we can love each other even when we're, uh, even when there's injustice. It means that no, something happened when Christ died. He died for the sins of sinners. And for those sinners, he made propitiation, the scripture says, or atonement. He paid for our sins. So we may be freed from them, redeemed from them. And therefore God has highly exalted him, that is, he was raised from the dead and ascended on high. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every son confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the Lord, you see. And it's in him, it's in the Lord and what he's done. That the Holy Spirit then unites us together. It's only through Jesus. That's why he would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Same way as Peter is preaching. He's saying there's no name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus, of course. So we unite it because of what Christ has done, and we unite it then together by the Holy Spirit. Non negotiables. That's this union that we have. So then the Apostle says, Now be diligent, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now let me ask you this. How do you evaluate your life? How do you evaluate, uh, for lack of a better term, your success in life? Whether you're the new word is whether you're flourishing, right? The old word was whether you had a robust, a robust life. Now we're off that one. We're into flourishing. So whatever word makes you happy. Uh, but how do, you, how do you really evaluate the success, if you could put it that way, 
of your life. You can have a number of markers, I suppose, how much wealth you have, how much money you make, uh, your career, how far you went in it, your social standing, um, your family, um, and all of that. You can have a variety of markers, I trust you do, to kind of gauge how well you're doing. The gauge that God uses in the context of our life deals with our unity together and our purity before him. He says, this is important. Make every effort. Be eager. Do all that you can. Be about this. Being unified together, you see. It's that important to him. And if we fail then to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, if we fail as the church to, to maintain this unity, this, this unity, then we've really failed, you see. That's something very important, something that is, is God's marker, if you will, for whether we're flourishing or not, whether we're successful or not in, in the context of our lives. It's that important, you see. So whatever it means, <laughs> it's important. We need to be about it to be about this whole thing of unity. So let me then smile and say this. Watch out in the next few months. Because you see, as we open up the scripture and begin to learn of things and think about things, such as unity, God will test us. And so, He'll test us in ways that will see the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace maintained around, among us. I, I trust we'll see it at VBS. We always do. It just amazes me as we see everyone come together and, and work in such a way. And, 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 and at the end of the day, uh, we still like each other. <clears throat> it's very amazing. Because we're amazed at what God has done always in this, in this week. Uh, and so there are times in the course of your life uh, that you'll see, I, I think, if you're heightened to this, if you're thinking about this as we study it together in the next couple of months, that you'll see the blessing of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But it may also be that we become very frustrated with each other in various ways. It may be that, that we find, uh, uh, we doubt one another and our motives and our sincerity and all of that. And, and so that can happen as well. And so, so then that becomes the test, that becomes the challenge. Are we going to be able in the midst of that to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? So I just warn you, and I do this because always when I'm preaching, my life gets miserable in certain ways, right? And my life gets tested in various ways. And it's as, as if, it isn't as if it's really happening, God is whispering in my ear, Bill, do you really believe this? You say, do you really believe this? You're going to really live this out. You can't open the Bible. That's what makes the Bible a living word. When we open it up, it deals with us. Because it's God dealing with us, you see. And so, here we are, by God's providence... I didn't think about this when I started Ephesians. But now I realize, all right, here we are. Are we going to do this? We're going to live like this. We're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're going to be diligent about that to really do that. We're going to see how important this really is. It's to God. I trust that we will. Well, very quickly, just the logic of this this unity. Notice how he puts it. In, in verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, 
Um, the word one, O-N-E, appears seven times. Now, I'm not going to make anything of the number seven, but it just appears a lot, let's say, over and over and over again. Um, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, why is it that Paul says it? He says, listen, it's about oneness. We share all of this together. There isn't anything unimportant here. Everything's important here. And, and this defines who we are as the people of God. And so, so I need to tell you that there's only one and we all share in each one of these ones, you see. There's one body and one spirit. Of course, the body of Christ is a metaphor that the apostle loves to use. We're familiar with it in other passages. And, and we realize that, <clears throat> that we're joined together, as we've already mentioned, but now we can emphasize it again. We're joined together as, uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice in 1 Corinthians and chapter 12, verse 13. Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit then baptizes us into one body, puts us into, if you will, we identify us as, as, as one body, this work of the Spirit. Now, we saw this very clearly in the scripture, in Acts chapter 2, on what we refer to as the day of Pentecost. That was a reversal of what took place back in Genesis chapter 11, which we know is this incident of the Tower of Babel. You remember that story in Genesis 11. Uh, human beings all get together and let's say, let's build a big tower uh, to our glory, make a name for ourselves. This will be great. And God says, no, that won't be great. That won't be for your benefit. And so he scatters people by languages. And then what happens in Acts chapter 2? Everybody's united. The Holy Spirit comes. So what does the Holy Spirit do when he comes? Acts chapter 2, he unites all these people who speak different languages. And, and what happens? Well, the apostles, they're, 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 they're declaring, proclaiming the, the wondrous works of God. And everybody there hears about the wondrous works of God in his own tongue, his own language. And so now it's reversed when the Holy Spirit comes. He, he reverses what sin brings. Sin brings disunity within ourselves and with God and with each other. And then the Spirit comes and brings unity, pulls that all together. We see that in Acts 2. And so he says, now, just as an extension of that work, he unites us together. He baptizes us into one body. So there is one Spirit, you see. He's doing this one work of uniting us all together because of the work of Christ. It makes us one body, which means we all belong, as Paul would say in this passage, the foot can't say to the hand, well, because I'm not a hand, I guess I don't belong. And we're all needed, right? The eye can't say to the, to the hand, uh, I guess you don't need me. No, we do. Everyone is needed and everyone belongs. We may be very different in all kinds of ways, but we share something. We're one body because there's one spirit who joins us all together. 
And then notice this too. He says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. For every believer, every Christian, our hope is, is, is the hope of our calling. That's why Paul prays in chapter 1, open their eyes that they may see the hope to which they have been called. What is the hope to which we've been called? The hope to which we've been called is that all things will one day be united under Christ. That's our hope. And when will that happen? That'll happen at his return. And at his return, then all things will be united in him and, and we'll receive this great inheritance. That's our hope. That's what we're looking towards. It's a hope. We haven't seen it in its fullness yet. We get bits and pieces of it now. But it, that's our hope. And that's the hope that every Christian has. If you rub a Christian uh, and look for hope, you'll find it. This is it. If you don't find it, then you have to wonder, is this person really a believer? Where, where is your hope really? You say, well, it's in this, the hope that's related to our calling that belongs to our call. And there's one Lord, one Jesus, not two Jesuses or 15. There is just one Lord, one Jesus Christ, one faith that is we believe, we trust in him. One baptism that is that we've all been baptized into the name of Christ, you see. And, and we're identified with him. And just in the same way that Old Testament circumcision identified uh, Israelites with God uh, and his Covenant is promise. Um, baptism identifies all believers with Jesus and all that's true in and from and through him. And then he says, and we're united because there's one God who is the father of all, who's over all and through all and in all, just this one God. So he has one people, one household. One kingdom of which all believers are united together. We're united, you see, uh, together like that. And we see it. It's amazing to me that we see it throughout history. And even in the present day, that all over the world, regardless of location, regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, regardless of culture, regardless of education, regardless of financial well-being, social status, all of that, they're believers in Christ. Today, all day long, throughout the whole world, Christians will be gathering everywhere. And we are one body because of one spirit. And there's one Lord in whom we all believe, and whose name we've been baptized, in one God and Father of us all, you see. Regardless of any of that, it just goes, cuts through every difference, humanly speaking, that we may have. And so we're really united together, and even in the context of local churches. Now, anytime you look at a particular church, you'll find more homogeneity in that church than you'll find in the church worldwide. You would expect to find that. But but still true, the differences among us all, that still we find ourselves united together. For many of us, we'd never know each other apart from this. Because we live in different neighborhoods, have different occupations, different social status, different incomes, different education levels, different ethnicities, different races, all kinds of differences. But, but yet we come together here and there's something about that. 
And we know that to be true. And when we find believers in Christ, there's something, we get it. We're united together in him to care for one another, to love one another, to go out of our way for each other, to sacrifice for each other, to share life with each other. There's something about that, no matter how different we may be otherwise, uh, when we know that another is a believer in Jesus, then there's this, this shared spiritual union that we haven't made, but it exists, and we're really, really uh, together uh, in this. So then the question, how do we maintain this? How do we keep it, you see? Now, I would have wished that Paul would say, the way that we maintain this unity is that God's going to make us all the same. <laughs> that would just be easy, especially if you're all made like me. But then it would just really be easy to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace if we're all alike. You know, if we all read every passage the same way every day, or if we all um, had the same temperament or the same gifts, if you will. God even makes this more difficult by giving us different gifts that sometimes don't always go together very nicely, it seems. It would really be nice if we were all alike in every way, thought alike, felt the same way about things responded to life in similar kinds of ways. But the truth of the matter is we know that isn't true. We know that even in a a local body, there are different traditions, different church backgrounds. There's different nationality, different races, different cultures, different understandings on how life is to be lived in various and sundry kinds of of ways. We have different temperaments and different gifts. Um, And so he calls us then to maintain this unity that is real, that really exists among us. And how does he do that? Well, he doesn't give us institutional rules. He doesn't say, well, organize yourself like this and all will be well. There are some passages about how we're to organize ourselves and that's helpful. But but that's not where he goes. He doesn't give us a series of rules. If you you box yourself up in these little boxes like this, then, then, then you'll be able to maintain this unity. It isn't an institutional thing. He goes right to our hearts and he says, there's a manner of life. There's a way of living. There's character that should be in us. And if this character is true, this is necessary, you see, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is, this is how you're to be. And notice what he says to us. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, you see. He says, that's what's necessary. That's how we live worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That's how we live worthy of the calling for unity, is to be people who are humble and gentle, to be people who are patient, to be people who bear with one another in love. Now, what does that, what does that look like? Well, obviously, humility and gentleness are related uh, together, and, and uh, humility comes, of course, this, this understanding, this Humble mind and heart comes first from understanding ourselves as we are in the presence of God. See, we're humbled when we learn the truth about ourselves, that first we're simply creatures. We mustn't ever forget that. That we're utterly dependent, you see, and utterly dependent upon God. Even if there is no sin, we'd still be utterly dependent upon God and humbled in his 
presence, he's the one who's made us. We haven't made ourselves, you see. That he's made us, he's the creator, and therefore we're creatures, we're dependent upon him. And, 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 and to add to that, of course, we realize that we're creatures who are sinners, that we've turned against him. And what we really deserve, and, and we really need to get our minds around this and embrace it, what we really deserve is, is his wrath. That's who we are. We've rebelled against him. We have no hope except in his sovereign mercy. That's who we are. And that should humble us, you see. The wonderful expression of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where the apostle speaks to a group of, um, which you get the impression of rather arrogant believers, and he says, what do you have that you haven't been given? <laughs> you see. He says, well, I have... Uh, well, I, okay, nothing, I guess. You see. And that's especially acute when we think about our own salvation. I mean, if, if, if Corinthians 1, verse 3 through 14, isn't true, I'm sunk. If God isn't the one who's initiated and worked my salvation, I'm sunk. I can do nothing. Because I do know that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is true, that I, apart from Christ, dead in my trespasses and sins, enslaved to the world and the flesh and the devil. I, I know that I'm stuck there. I need someone to rescue me. And so I need someone in the midst of my spiritual death to give me spiritual life because I, I can't bring life out of death. Only God can do that. And so, so knowing that, you see, I, I realize um, who I really am in the presence of God. And it's really to... To humble us. To humble me. How can I be arrogant when I, when I acknowledge that I deserve the wrath of God? And then once you know that about me, and I know that you know that about me, <laughs> how can I ever be proud or harsh towards you? Because I'm a sinner in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all I can really do is, is trust, of course. Uh, that's it. You see, when we, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. That blessed are you when you know who you are in the presence of God as a creature and one who's a sinner. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Which means you realize your sin and you mourn. They shall be comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. What's he mean by that? Well, the expression comes from Psalm 37. If you'll take a look very quickly. I know the time. I'm almost finished. I'm sorry. Psalm 37. Um, it's where the expression comes, verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the, inherit the land. And verse 9, uh, but um, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Well, who are these who inherit the land? Who are these ones who are meek? These people who are meek who know they are, who they are in the presence of God and, and live that out in front of other people. And these are people who, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. They commit their ways to the Lord and trust in him that he will act. They're still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Thus they refrain from anger and forsake wrath. 
And they don't fret themselves in front of evil. But they wait for the Lord. They're meek. They realize, I can't, he can. I haven't, but he will. So the meek is the one who trusts. You trust the Lord and therefore don't have to look out for your own rights, if you will. We read from Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians in chapter 2 is our statement of faith. Verse 5 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, this humility, this meekness is found in Christ Jesus and it's an attitude of the mind. We begin in verse 1 of Philippians 2. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That each of you look not only to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. If we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we have to be humble. And thus we have to consider the interests of others. As he puts it here, more significant than ourselves. Do we know anybody like that? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus, in his humility, you see, he was equal with the Father, but he didn't grasp it. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and gave himself. Why? Because he trusted his Father. So we, though we're equal, if you will, in the eyes of God and so forth, we can, in humility, knowing our own creatureliness and knowing our own sinfulness and knowing the grace of God that we've received, can humble ourselves and serve. Fascinating expression in First Peter in chapter 5, where the apostle says we're to clothe ourselves with humility. That little word clothe means to put on an apron. It doesn't mean much, I suppose. But it's the apron that a slave would wear. It's an apron that one who's lowly would wear. And how do we say, how do I get there? Well, we see ourselves in the presence of God. And we realize that we're sinners saved by grace. Every one of us, you see. And so when we differ, we realize we're not that different. We realize that we're sinners saved by grace. He goes on to say very quickly that we're to be patient uh, with one another. And that just simply means that, that, that when we're aggravated, that we don't allow our emotions to get the best of us. When you're aggravated, people always say, well, I prayed for patience. No, you didn't. You prayed that God would take the thing away from you that was aggravating you, right? I mean, that's what I do. I mean, patience means take this away and I'll be fine. Then God doesn't take it away when we pray for patience. He gives us the strength to bear with it. And thus he goes on to say, uh, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another is just being patient a long time. Tolerating in each other all those things which drive you nuts. 
How can we do that? Well, because we realize that when I'm aggravated and I'm to be patient with you and I get upset and I say to God, look at this. And he says, you don't think you're aggravating (laughs) to other people? You don't know the patience that people have shown you already in the course of your life. Maybe you didn't notice it and acknowledge it, but people have been really patient with you, Bill. And by the way, so have I. Be patient with each other. Bearing with each other. When someone else sins, how do you deal with their sin? How do you understand their sin? You ask yourself the question, have I ever sinned? People ever been gracious to me in the midst of my sin? And of course, people have. And God has. As I've said before, when I'm with people and they confess sin to me, that uh, I can be, not as a priest, but they confess it. We talk it through and pray it through. I can always build a bridge to whatever their sin is in my life. I may not have committed that particular sin in that particular way. uh, And and I've sat with, as you can imagine, all kinds of things confessed. But I can always say, I I could see me there. Because I'm simply a sinner saved by grace. And as I put myself there, I realize, be gentle. Be humble. Be patient. And so you see, as we live like that, we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's crucial for us. It means we must sacrifice a great deal at times. We might sacrifice our social standing. We might sacrifice our place. We might sacrifice being known as the smartest one or the right one or the one that has all the answers. Uh, we might sacrifice all kinds of things but we're to sacrifice them with joy, not bitterness. Because we know that when we're maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, God is pleased that we're walking worthy of this calling uh, together. This is wedding season coming up. Uh, we'll be doing a lot of weddings over the course of the, of the summer. They often preach about unity, as you might suspect, at a wedding. And because there is this union that takes place, Paul will use this, in fact, in Ephesians 5 as an illustration of the union between Christ and his church, the union of a husband and wife. And uh, always ask couples, they're not listening, but I ask everybody else that's married out there. Always ask, uh, how's God loved you? Did he wait for you to deserve it? And the answer, of course, is, well, no, he hasn't. And I say, love like that. Love like that. Don't wait till the other meets your standards, the other deserves it. Love like you've been loved. And I always ask, you want to be filled with joy? And if you do, then Jesus said, the way you're filled with joy is to love one another as I've loved you. And I've told you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And then I always say, I always ask, so is there any hope that you're going to be able to do this? <laughs> and the answer is, of course there's hope. 
There's hope because, you see, Christ dwells within us. Remember Paul's prayer earlier in Ephesians 3? May be strengthened in our inner being with power that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. That is, that in his dwelling, he'll he'll, he'll remodel our hearts, he'll change us. He'll he'll, he'll redo the inside of our lives in such a way that, that we reflect him. And when he does that, you know what will be reflected in our hearts is humility and meekness. And patience and forbearance and love. That's our hope, that he's at work in us. We have no hope apart from that. But, but because he's at work within us, we can trust that we'll see in the course of our relationships in marriage. But in this context, our relationships with each other, we'll see the work of Christ in us. And what we'll see then as Christ is at work within us is humility and meekness and, and, and gentleness and, and patience and forbearance and love. We'll actually see it amongst us. And we'll say, yes. He is at work among us. We're to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that you would enable us to do that, that you would work in us in such a way that Christ would be formed in us. His very character, even as he lives in us, and that we'd see it, that we'd be a people humble and gentle, that we'd be a people patient and forbearing and love and we'd be a people that manifests the manifold wisdom of God as he unites by his spirit through the work of Christ his people and this I pray in Jesus name